Welcome to this episode of the Tez Magazine Debrief. Uh, I'm John Severs and I'm joined as always by Gronya Hallahan. Hi, Gronya. Hello. And Dan Worth. Hi, Dan. Hi there. Um, this week we are looking at the 26th of March edition of Tez, um, which has an amazing cover feature on uh, whistleblowing and can do teachers feel comfortable enough to whistleblow? Um, we're not going to talk about that one today, but it'd be really good to get your feedback on social media on that one because I think it's an issue that's probably hugely unreported. Um, we're instead going to focus on three of the other features. Um, so let's get started. Okay, Gwen, you are going to start with a feature on crisis fatigue. And anyone who read our special issue last week will see that teachers have had to deal with a huge amount of stuff this year. Uh, that special edition was in front of the paywall, so please do go and check it out. It's still freely available. But this week we're talking about crisis fatigue, Gwenya. Yes, so now that everyone is back in the classroom again, we're thinking about how that's affected us in different ways and how the impacts of the pandemic have meant that perhaps some people are coming back to the classroom feeling differently about their job, differently about the, the students they teach and differently about their colleagues and this sort of sense of feeling not quite right. And Lauren Hampshire-Dell, she pitched this piece to us because she was experiencing this this herself. And she's I managed to catch up with her to, to have a chat about it. And I, we can hear that now. Thank you for joining me today, Lauren Hampshire-Dell. Thank you for inviting me, Gronya Hallahan. So... You're on the Tez Magazine Debrief podcast and we get the chance to talk about your article. So should we start off with you explaining to the listeners what your article is about? Of course. So the article is exploring um, the concept of crisis fatigue, which is something that lots of people might be suffering from, but not realise that they have it because a lot of the symptoms line up with just kind of general wear and tear of being a teacher. Uh, and it's about how senior leaders can take that knowledge and use it and try and make things a little bit better for their teams as we kind of keep navigating through the COVID schooling system at the moment. And you actually pitched this idea to me, didn't you? This was something that you you came and said, hey, Gwonya, I've got this idea. Tell me what, <laughs> what was happening that made you bring this to our attention? Well, I think personally, I've found this lockdown much more difficult than the other ones. And there was like little changes in me that I thought, this is really strange that all these things are happening at the same time that I've never suffered from before. So I started looking into it and then it turns out that crisis fatigue is like probably impacting a massive number of the population, but it's not kind of medically recognised and you're not really talked about it. There's no real tips to it. And the more I got into it, the more I was like, oh my gosh, I think everyone around me is probably suffering bits of crisis fatigue and Actually, there's a lot more that we can be doing to help ourselves get through it, but it's difficult having the motivation and the knowledge to do so whilst we're kind of in a lockdown environment. So I wanted to produce something kind of practical that people could use, but also to raise awareness that actually we're probably in a difficult system at the moment that maybe it's not just how you feel, it's real and other people are suffering from it as well. Because I think it would be a mistake to think just because schools have opened more widely and everybody's, everybody's expected back in the classroom now that we're all just going to go back to normal and it's all just going to be like it was before. Because it's really not like this is not life as normal at the moment, is it? And it's not going to be for some time. No, absolutely not. And even going back into a classroom, that doesn't mean everything. It's not you're back in front of 30 kids doing what you love and it's super easy. That, that You're still delivering half and half lessons. You might get isolated. Half your year 11s might disappear because they've been put in an isolation bubble. There's still so much going on and we're still in lockdown. So mm. nothing has actually changed in terms of that social 
needs either. So the things that teachers actually kind of rely on to get through, they're still not getting that either. You won't get the rest of the Easter holidays to kind of go out, see your family, see your friends, all the things that we normally rely on to kind of keep us going. We still don't have those either. So the classroom's still stressful Mm -hmm. and there's not the release of real life either, is there? You know, I'm going to preface what I'm about to say with the acknowledgement that I have absolutely no scientific justification for what what I'm going to say. (laughs) But I feel like the kids are more crazy when lockdown's on because they've got nowhere for their, like, there's no outlet for them. There's no outlet for energy. And so they're in the classroom and they're, you know, they're okay in the classroom, but you get to lunch times, break times, all those times where there's a little bit of leeway and they have a little (laughs) bit of a chance to sort of, go a bit crazy and the behavior and and that's so stressful for teachers because you've got all these extra behavior issues to deal with and that's one of the big things actually of crisis fatigue is that you your emotional abilities start to become wobbly too so Mm. like you have less patience you might find you've got less patience or less empathy and all those things we rely on in a massive way as teachers don't we to kind of keep ourselves going and to be everything that we need to everyone and so when they're really pushing you and you've really got no resources left to kind of get through it, that's a double whammy for, for staff and kids and senior leaders and, and everyone. Do you know, of everything you've just said, I think it's that empathy level that is going to be the biggest challenge because as a teacher, your empathy has got to be crazy high all day, every single class, different needs. And those students don't, of course, they don't appreciate the fact that you've just seen six of the classes that day and they're just the sixth, you're, this is the sixth period you've got to. But, you know, it's it's really hard to maintain that levels of really caring about every single one when you're worn down and all your own levels are depleted. And especially that emotional thing for you, because a lot of people aren't getting emotionally fulfilled at the moment either. And somehow you're supposed to have these like endless pockets, these endless reserves of empathy and love for all your students. And you might have lost someone due to COVID or you might not have seen your family or you might have a new baby and you come back to work and there's no one there to support you. You might be going through a million things that you can't bring to the classroom but Mm. are also a bit of a wall in terms of your emotional abilities and how you're feeling as well. But you know, the first thing you should be doing is reading your your article. Yeah, so. read the, that's the first thing to do is read the article. And there's loads of really helpful <laughs> advice. Like so many senior leaders have given such amazing advice on how, what they're doing to support their teams. But also it might be good for other senior leaders to help look after their senior leadership team as well, because they're important as well. Without them, everything else will be difficult as well. It's a tricky old situation, but you can definitely start by having a read, get some yeah. ideas, acknowledge that this is a problem if it's you how can we address it and moving forward so thank you so much lauren so what i thought was really interesting of what lauren was talking about there was the idea that your empathy levels are really depleted and therefore it's very much it's so much more difficult to relate to your students and to find like that that empathy you need to have with your pupils when they come to you with problems or just generally in the class and how that's going to be be a real problem for some people yeah, I think we've seen that in our in our social media in the past few weeks that empathy and um just just being nice has gone out the window a little bit on our on our social channels because we used to get very constructive debates around um the articles we published and you know more than 90% of our articles were by teachers for teachers and so people used to see that as a as a um a sign to engage on perhaps different terms to 
the usual on social media. We tended to have quite constructive discussion. We had respectful discussion. And and the incidences of what you might call trolling were quite minimal, really. Um, but we've all seen what's happened over the past, or since Christmas, this, this sort of fatigue setting where people's patience with each other has gone. And sometimes that's tripped over into some really nasty um, comments to each other between teachers. And I, I don't know what you think, guys, but I, I, it's been quite shocking to me to see teachers behaving like that. Yeah, I think you're right. I think I think absolutely is a sign of fatigue in a way. And I think it's an outlet that probably feels like an easy way to get some of that frustration out, that, that exhaustion, that sense of no no end to this sort of difficult time. Even though they're back in school, there's all the kind of new rules and regulations. It's not like oh, back to normal, is it? And I think sometimes maybe when you're tired at the end of a long day and you're, you know, your energy levels are down, seeing something on Twitter or Facebook that just sets you off the wrong way. It's so easy these days, isn't it, just to fire off a message. And I'm sure that person wouldn't write that, written that message 18 months ago. You know, I think I think there's definitely an element of that. And that's probably, you know, almost like you might say it's a sort of, I don't want to say a cry for help, that's too extreme, but it's a sense of, yeah, I'm struggling and I'm just finding a way to just sort of lash out because we all do, don't we? That's a sort of well-known thing is anger is a sort of misdirected emotion and, I think that's quite possibly what we're seeing. And I think you're right. It's important to sort of at that moment to stop. I think I don't need to post this message. I don't need to bring more negativity negativity out there. I should just, you know, step away for five minutes and go do some some breathing or read a book or something different, you know, than, than, than do that on social media particularly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's that thing where they wouldn't have written it 18 months ago and they certainly wouldn't say it to the person face-to-face. If they were having a conversation with that person, there's no way they would have such a vitriolic response to quite mundane things sometimes or or just a differing opinion or a differing experience or because that experience doesn't include what or they don't consider that experience to include them in the picture to to be so angry about it. And um, it's, it's really upsetting to read. It feels like there's a sort of siege mentality as well where... I guess people have been de-socialized in a way where everything's become quite digital and it seems people's sort of <laughs> levels gone a bit haywire. You know, you know, you know, you sometimes say things in new company and you think, oh, is this, is this acceptable in this group of people? Or is this, is this a comment for that WhatsApp group over there? You know, you don't, where's the level? And I think people's level has got a bit skewed and they don't really understand where the, where the lines are in different contexts. And there's no comeback to it. So they can say it and they can say something outrageous and horrid and they can think they've been really funny and witty and they've put someone down. But there's there's no repercussion for that. Nobody nobody looks and sees what comments they've made. Their friends won't know. Their family won't know. They've, they've made comments like that online. So where's the harm in it? I think we started to see a kickback, haven't we, as well? After the rugby at the weekend, the Welsh Rugby Union tweeted... The, some of the comments that Liam Williams had had, and um, when Sonia McLaughlin, the the BBC Sport um, pundit commentator, you know, staff member, was abused, they they published some of the comments she'd had, and there, there seems to be this increasing shift to say, "Hang on a minute, like let's call this out." But I don't know about you, I I, I haven't seen much let up even as a result of that. I, it just seems to no. There's there's a real hardcore of people on social media who, from all backgrounds, and obviously we're talking about who just just see it as a as a free platform to say things to people and and I I find it bizarre like if I was if you I just think if you find yourself writing a message where you're kind of atting someone midway through the message to to raise an issue with them and so particularly in quite nasty language but even just generally it's just like why are you writing that message there's obviously a time and place for critique and criticism or or saying to someone you know I think you should be careful when you say this kind of thing or make sure you know your language was inappropriate or whatever it might be there are times of course where that's fine and you can do that respectfully but 
like mass pylons over the way someone interviews someone after a rugby game, like you say, or someone makes a mistake in a high pressure sporting environment. So they actually think, right, I've got to stop what I'm doing now and get on my Twitter and at that person. I mean, say, say, oh, what an annoying decision by the player and mention them by now. Don't at them. It's the atting of them, particularly, that I find really nasty because that's quite deliberately trying to say, I want them to read this. I want to really make them unhappy. And it's like, I'm sure that person is feeling bad already if they've made a mistake in a, in a game or something. And, I don't know. I don't know why people feel the need to do that so much. And, and particularly it, when it is, like I said, the language is nasty. Right, respectfully, okay, one, well, that's one thing. But some of the language is just appalling, really. It's treating other people like they're not even people. Mm, yeah. It's going to be um, interesting to see how that knocks on into schools in the next few months in terms of both a head teacher's own actions, a head teacher looking at the, the interactions between staff, and then dealing with a lot of the fallout between pupils as well. I mean, where does you know, where's this line been and, and between which people? Um, so I think it's going to be one that we hope will improve as, as people become more social physically again. Um, but, but we don't know, unfortunately. This brings us to the second feature we're going to look at, which is, you know, all to do to a degree to do, to do with empathy, which is about vocabulary. Um, so there's a feature this week in our How I, which looks at the explicit teaching of vocabulary in schools and how vocabulary knowledge is linked to positive outcomes um, at the end of education and into life. So there's this need to broaden uh, students' vocabulary for cultural enjoyment and educational outcomes. It's just not all about the grades. But it got me thinking about my own experience with um, vocabulary and why my relationship with it, with it, if you like. And I started journalism trying to be like the, right in the simplest language possible. I had a real problem with complex language, what I saw as complex language. And it was stemmed from an incident at university when I said uh, facade rather than facade and got laughed royally down. And it just epitomized what I saw as the discriminatory impact of language. You know, it's exclusionary. Why, why would you write in a complex way? Because that excludes people who can't access that. And so I was, I find it very uncomfortable when writing in a very, using complex terminology or raw romantic language. And it all stems from this sort of childhood experience of learning words through reading mostly. And it's not a cultural attention on it in schools to make you feel comfortable using that terminology. Um, so I was just going to open up a discussion. I mean, what do you think about, what is your own relationship with vocabulary, I should say? Are you wordsmiths, both of you? Do you feel comfortable using, you know, your dictionary and your thesaurus? Well, I think I've already outed myself as a, as a fan of etymology.com. So I'm happy to say I do love words and I love finding out what words mean. But I think there's, I, I grew up in a family where my dad, my dad has this really funny thing of splitting words into woody words and tinny words. So we would talk about words a lot at home and he had this own way of like saying if a word was nice or not, like it's got a nice woody sound or it's got a horrible tinny sound. So like a woody word would be like incongruous. That's like a nice, it sounds nice to say, doesn't it? But a tinny word would be something like, ugh, I don't know. I just have a think. Like a, like a more... Well, even the word tinny is quite unpleasant, I think. Exactly. So, like, I suppose, like, an obvious, like, titinous, like, that's uh, anything that's unpleasant to say is a tinny word, but words that are nice to say are woody words. And making them sound silly like that, breaking it into, like, a, simplifying it into words that are nice to say and that words aren't nice to say is 
it, it takes the fear out of it, doesn't it? And it was fine. Like he would get a dictionary out and look up the meaning of a word. And that was, that was okay to do. And I always tried to model that as a teacher. When I was in the classroom, I'd always get a dictionary and look up words in the dictionary. So oh, let's find out what that means together because there's so many words. It'd be impossible to know all the words. It shouldn't, you shouldn't ever feel bad because you don't know what a word means. Yeah, well, I, I, um, I had a teacher who always extolled that idea of getting a dictionary or having a dictionary when you read and looking up the words. And I, I mean, how do people really do that? I don't know. So now it's easier with the internet or your, your smartphone. But, um, but I, I love this piece in the, in the magazine and I think it's a really important thing. I do agree that having a good vocabulary, it's a bit like, you know, it, it just it's a tool, isn't it? It's something that you can call on when you need it. And if you're writing something, it's amazing how something very basic can be made to sound better by changing a few words around to sound a bit more high and mighty. And when I read this piece, actually, one of the things I thought of was, you know, there's a scene in um, Catch Me If You Can where Leonardo Carrick, Leonardo DiCaprio's character is watching a medical documentary when he's faking being a doctor. He's watching a film about doctors, sorry. And one of the doctors in the film says, do you concur to another doctor? And then he he, he uses that then in theatre when he's completely faking it. But because it sounds authoritative and because he's not saying agree, he's saying concur, the other doctors sort of take him very seriously. They think, oh, he's smart. He's using a different word than agree. And it's such a simple thing, isn't it? And I think that's true of all life. You can write a little thing for your boss and if you just change a few words to sound a bit more, you know, as outlined in the brief here, you know, aff the aforementioned brief will contain details. You're basically saying, as a, up above where I said this. You know, it's the same thing, but it just sounds smarter. I think so that's I do it. Think if, it's yeah, like winging do. it, right? Yeah. It, it, feels but like... it, all, it does also let you be more specific, doesn't it? Like the more words you know, the more specific you can be was... and the more clear you can be in your meaning. Yes, and that was what my other point was going to be is that, however, when you're trying to describe something, whether it's the human experience or an mm. event to the police or something in writing, the more vocabulary you can use that actually, because you might say, oh, it was you know, it was a brilliant day or it was a, it was a brilliant performance. That's quite boring. Why not say it was a sublime performance? You know, suddenly it's like you've elevated it beyond. It wasn't just a brilliant performance by that player. It was sublime. You know, it's like, wow, you don't hear that word used so often. And I think when you've got that kind of words, you can just pull in and go, no, that's what I really want to say right now. I think that's a really powerful thing. And it's interesting that that's linked to life performance according to this piece and having that knowledge. I'd love there to be some research into teaching children the vocabulary for emotions and then how they improve in their English essays. Because I think so much of it is to do with emotions and naming your emotions. There's a huge thrust around that in special schools where, particularly in schools for autistic students, they name the emotions because that helps them communicate how they're feeling each day in a way that they, they don't find easy. And that naming of emotions, you know, is is proved really useful in in small scale studies in in, in those areas. I think it's for, for, I think my problem stems around perhaps the culture of being the brainy kid in school. You know, back in those days, in the sense that you didn't want to be the brainy kid. You wanted to be, you know, around number ten out of thirty because that was a safe space to be. That's just what you wanted, John. I don't think you can say that's the same for every child in school there's plenty of kids that want to be the smartest kid and there's lots of kids that want to be when i go into schools now i see that but if i you just didn't see it before there was definitely i can people who went to john's school please come forward (laughs) and say they wanted to be the smartest kid in school (laughs) there was one there was one i think she's a doctor now but everyone else was sort of like "Mm, just slip under the radar a bit just keep it Bubbling I, would, I would agree with you John. Didn't I, speak think most, to them. I think most children in most schools probably don't want to stand out as number one, top mm. of the class, 
But not all. It's a different. No, 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 I don't think John meant literally. I think he was just talking. He's not talking, talking about absolutes, Gronya. <laughs> 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 but no, I do think there's there's a there's a culture around ma- making it acceptable to to have conversations with advanced vocabulary, and I think schools are sort of nailing that at the moment. Mm. Like when you go into a school, the culture seems to be different. It seems to be more acceptable to to be experimental, to push it a little bit more. And I don't know why that is, but you, it just feels different. Do you remember when Russell Brand was like at the height of his popularity and he had that bookie work book and um, my brother read it and he was absolutely impossible to speak to for about a year because he kept using all these stupid words incorrectly and he, you just couldn't have a straight conversation with him. And I remember getting so cross with him once, I kicked him out of my car because he just wasn't making any sense. <laughs> Zero tolerance from Gronia. <laughs> get out. Get out. I can't stand this anymore. Get out. But it, it's so interesting, this conversation, isn't it? Because you're absolutely right. Like people, there's a George Orwell, one of his rules for writing is never use a long word where a short one will do. And that's something I also agree with. And I've, I remember people at university and whatnot, that I used to read their writing and you think you're just using a thesaurus. You're just trying to say, and almost to my other point earlier, it's like there's a line and if you cross it and start over yeah. using far too complex of words that you don't need to, you just turn people off or you deliberately like John's point, you, you alienate people and you shouldn't do that because it, ultimately you just want to get your message across clear, simple, concise, done. But there are times when, and maybe this goes into that social media point when, and to your point earlier, John, if you've got the right language, you can articulate yourself better. And whether that's about emotion or whether that's about frustration at someone's performance in the sporting field, rather than just swearing and, and insulting them, you could say, oh, it was so frustrating to witness such a, you know, disappointing display. Or you could say, I, I know, respectfully, I disagree with your assessment there. However, language like that can can make everyone a bit more civil, can't it? And so and if we can say, I don't feel, you don't say, I feel sad today. You say, I feel depressed and I feel underwhelmed or I feel I'm not fulfilling my ambition. That's actually what we want to say, but you don't have to say, it. you just say, oh, I feel sad today. Mm. Well, it would, would it be a better, healthier place if you could say that better so yeah it's a really interesting that line and where is that between complex and useful and complex and unhelpful i don't know about the books you sought when you were teenagers but i found my found myself seeking out plain speaking writers so like graham green um uh i can't think of any of philip larkin you know i like the plain the plain english sort of you know did you ever read rebecca ray no she wrote a certain age and she was part of like a group of writers who had this ambition to write really plainly and just really direct. And I thought she was a wonderful writer. So even though it was really plain language, it was so beautiful because the story she told was so clever and it was so... But yeah, there's a there's definitely a lot in plain language. I guess language. the sort of... The counter-argument is that when, like you said earlier, Dan, when you oversimplify, are you relying on a hell of a lot of background knowledge of that kid? I mean, when you were talking then about the plain English thing, I was talking, I was thinking about Ezra Pound and doing the two-line poem at university and thinking, wow, we're reading a lot into two two lines here. Like, guys, <laughs> like, come on. Um, but again, I guess there's discrimination in plain language because you're assu- you have to assume a certain amount of interpretive power of the reader. You're you're having to assume that they understand what you're trying to do. And I think maybe uh, you just give me a new perspective there. Maybe there is there is a counter argument around that as well. 
trying to think of a smart word to end that with. And <laughs> definitely. <laughs> so strong a point that I stunned you into not using any words at all. <laughs> so um, read that article this week and do tell us what you think about about vocabulary. I'd love to hear of your own words that that you messed up in front of people and people laughed at you because there is comfort in numbers and and it still haunts me to this day. Okay, feature free. Over to you, Dan. Yes, I have chosen a piece from the Growth Mindset column by Shabnam Ahmed, who talks about moving from being teaching GCSE to teaching A-level and how it's something she always looked forward to and thought of it as the holy grail of being a teacher. And then when she first got there to teach A-level, she really didn't enjoy it, um, in part because it sounds like she sort of overthought and, and sort of treated them too much like university, you know, approaching university age. And should have given them a little bit more sense if they still are pupils, they still want to learn in the same ways as GCSE. But obviously there is that transition. And I thought it was interesting because again, it shows there's two things I liked about this. Is one, it shows as a teacher, like in any profession, something you think you want, you can achieve, and then it's not what you lived it, you expect it to be. But sometimes you just have to then sort of take time to learn through that. And it made me think about that transition from GCSE to A-level. And I remember that being quite difficult, actually, particularly French. I was quite good at French GCSE, and I studied it with quite sort of willingness within about three months or the first term, I, I hated it. It was far, the jump up was so big and I, I was no good at the, the sort of the grammar rules and the construction, which became much more important. I was good at the vocabulary. That was all that got me through really. But but the rest was just, I was baffled by it. And I think for teachers, and it was interesting to hear from the teacher side that as a teacher, you can step up to A-level and suddenly it's it can feel quite different and daunting or hard or, oh, how do I, you know, these pupils are doing a very specific subject because they love it and they want to study at university. I've got to up my game or really in, you know, tap into that love they've got and maybe they don't have that actually and there's so many sort of more things to think about there and I just thought it was a good honest piece about the way things can play out differently to how you might imagine them sometimes. I love the way she described that that A-levels as this bridge between school and university one that's you know you do sort of have to reach out towards that lecture style and doing sort of more seminar style, style teaching but you've got to keep your other side of the bridge in school still and I think it's, you know, it, it is true. A-level is so different to what you think it will be when you come to teach it. And I'm, I'm sure lots and lots of teachers will be nodding along when they read that piece. I found um, the jump from GCSE to A-level was quite subject dependent. I, I was, I loved the shift in English because suddenly I could say what I wanted. And even if it was complete bullshit, as long as I had a bullshit explanation for it and could prove it in the text, I was suddenly, I felt freed by it. Whereas in maths, Christ, it was a step up of just, it was like, it was like taking a different language course, maths A-level. It was like, what is going on? What, what a mistake I've made. Those two you've just mentioned, though, the maths and the lang modern foreign languages, those are the two hardest ones to transition from GCSE to A-level for. Is it right? Mm. I, and probably chemistry. My mum would tell me if I didn't mention chemistry. Chemistry A-level is also much harder than, than GCSE, and that's often why they ask for such high grades at GCSE to do it for A-level. I hadn't realised. But in English, I mean, it was a case of suddenly someone wanted to know my actual opinion. And that might be oh. to do with the teaching involved. But, you know, I was like, oh, I can say anything. And the text, the text for A-level in English are just awesome, aren't they? What like, did you do? We did Franken's Dracula. We did Dracula. Oh, we did um, translations. Did a lot of poetry. Um, what else did we do? I can't remember now. So good that you've forgotten. That's bad, isn't it? <laughs> we did the Bell by Iris Murdoch. Which oh, we did that. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, yeah it's good. Yeah. We did we did lots of Larkin, which is great. Mm. We did the Great Gatsby, which fantastic, and uh, Othello, 
also very, very good. So yeah, really, some really good text that really, you know, you can really delve into. And particularly the bell, I remember at the start thinking, oh, what, what is this? You know, <laughs> woman goes off to a religious place. Ugh. But by the end of it, it was, it was so good. And again, the teacher was brilliant. And yeah, but interesting, like I said, that step up, it, it's interesting to hear that because that, that does chime with what I, certainly what I experienced. Like it, was just, it was too much and I dropped out after I, well, that was NAS level. So it's fine. I scraped through with like mm. an E, I think. <laughs> But what Shabnam describes in that sort of disillusionment when you've got a class full of kids, you're like, you know, we're going to do English. And you think they're going to be really enthusiastic about it because they've picked your subject. Like you've you've had five years of teaching kids English. You have to teach it because it's a national curriculum subject. But now it's A-level. They've picked you and they don't really want to do English. They're just doing it because it's one of the ones they were able to do or it fit with the other subjects. And can you remember being in in A level class and like kids in my? I was shocked that kids in my A level class didn't like reading. I was like, well, why are you here? Like, what what did you pick this subject for? And it it was a bit like that at university as well. I think people take subjects for different reasons, don't they? Yeah. And, and with an with an eye on career or or keeping options open, and English yeah. is a great one for keeping options open. Yeah. Um, it's sort of like, well, if I do English, I can apply for this vast array of stuff and the notion is like well i'm not going to do chemistry because i don't want to be a doctor or a scientist mm. even though that's not true and you can chemistry can take you into all sorts of routes just as english with the campus exception there and it's familiar and it's you know you might opt to english over like psychology because you've never done psychology before but you've done english before so it's a it's a known entity whereas you might not go for a brand new subject mm. It must be hard. Like I, I did English and history. Great. No brainer. Really liked them. Really good at them. That carried on. French, I thought I was going to enjoy and was good at. But really, I wasn't. I was just good at remembering vocabulary, which isn't the same thing at all. And then my fourth or my third, as it became, was geography, which I kind of liked, didn't mind it, kind of got it. But there must be lots of people who like love one subject, maybe two. And then picking that third one could be a real millstone that must drag the other two down a little bit. Because if I, because like everything else, like sciences, no, I just, just didn't enjoy them. I didn't take them. Maths, no. Like German, no. PE, no, I didn't want to do that, whatever it was. So you were sort of letting them, in a way, by default, geography just slotted in. And thankfully, I was reasonably okay at it. But if I'd have been terrible at it or hated it, it would have been two I liked and one I hated and one I just gave up on or, you know, dropped off when I was allowed to. So there must be, there must be people out there that have that kind of one or two subjects only and then have to sort of scrape in a third somewhere. I think that's it. I think you you nearly just recovered them because Mark Enter, our, our test columnist, would have been very upset. Oh, if so been, cross. If you just slagged geography then, I mean, I think he might have resigned from Tez. So well, geography, that. Phys- physical geography, <laughs> I enjoyed because I could sort of get behind, you know, I could get into it. Oh, you do like human geography. Ge- I, I, I love human geography. I, I, didn't, I didn't have the best teacher for that either, which again makes a big difference. Isn't it? Good teacher, great. Not mm. so great teacher. Not so great. Some but, of us didn't do geography from year nine onwards. <laughs> no, I didn't. So those of us no. who had to select it, yeah, mm-hmm. which is just as bonkers, isn't it? Do you want to do geography or history? They're not mutually exclusive subjects, yet you're forced into this choice. I managed to drop both. I didn't do geography or history from year nine onwards. It's a wonder I know anything, really. Well, no, no comment on that. We had to do RE because Catholic school. Yeah, no, same. Mark's gospel. Yes, yes. Oh, my goodness. I know that that gospel back to front. There's Catholic school listeners everywhere going, oh, Mark's gospel. The and that little, it was a little blue one, wasn't it? Yeah. And I remember yeah, the boys in my yeah. class got hold of my copy and made lots of rude rude comments in it and drawings. See, you're, you're, the, the picture you paint of your school years is, is that you're this kid who didn't go to lessons and was a bit of a rebel and then one who gets upset if someone writes a rude word on there. You shouldn't draw in gospel. books. You shouldn't draw in books, so should you. Right. Just... No, you're right. 
<laughs> Dan, Dan was going to come back on you and inform. No, I, I'm not going to play devil's advocate. Books are important. You can um, annotate in them, but you can't write awful things about Jesus in Mark's Gospel. Well, no, that's right, my no, line. No, that one, yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> on that note, we should uh, we should end the pod before we offend any more religious uh, groups around the world. Um, so thank you for listening, and uh, we'll be back next week. If you enjoyed listening to this week's issue of the magazine Debrief Podcast and want to read more of Tez Magazine online and have it delivered to your door, subscribe now at tez.com forward slash store.